Well, given that I knew that we were starting a series in, that we were calling Honest to Goodness, a series about the ways in which honesty is critical and essential to us becoming the people in the community that God has created and called us to be. I knew we were talking about honesty. So I was very intrigued when a couple of weeks ago, an article came across my computer screen about people who lie specifically on social media or with their technology. You know, so much, we haven't really talked about technology in this series, but so much of our conversation is now mediated by technology in some form, whether texting or, uh, you know, on the phone too, but texting and on social media and so on, that it actually, I think, becomes a little bit easier for us to be dishonest about our lives when the other person can't actually see us, when they're not, when we're not face to face with the other person. And this article was essentially about people who were trying to be dishonest using their technology, but it, it wasn't going very well for them. So I thought I would share a few of them with you this morning. We'll put the first one up. This is, this seems to be somebody texting with their significant other. It says, hey babe, what are you doing? They say, well, nothing much. I'm really tired just going to sleep now, babe. And you? Standing in the club right behind you. <laughs> maybe, maybe if you're going to lie to your significant other, do one of these first. You know, look over your shoulder, see whether, whether they can even see you at the moment. But here's another one. Here's somebody who's lying about their significant other. They said, my boyfriend made a promise that we would visit Paris and lock a padlock on this very bridge and throw away the key. It's a symbolic gesture of our love and commitment he is my soul, my life, my reason for fighting. What a sweet sentiment, except that's Australia, somebody noticed. If you look through the fence, uh, that's the Sydney Opera House. So if you're going to lie about roman how romantic your, uh, your significant other is, maybe go to a geography class first. Um, here's a third one. I like this one. It's harder to read, but somebody writes... On Facebook, Christmas isn't about overpriced gifts and bragging rights to what you bought for who, should be whom, but we'll leave that. It's about being a good person and helping out your fellow people. Don't lose sight of the real deal. And you can see on the receipt for like a $28 meal, he tipped $100 for a $128 bill. And somebody underneath comments, uh, make sure you put that on the copy that the server takes. You wrote that on the guest copy. <laughs> somebody trying to sneak in a little uh, deception about how generous they actually are. Here's the last one I'll show you. Out with the hubby, enjoy a few much needed cocktails. Um, a friend comments, I thought you were covering for your boss since his dad died. If you guys didn't want to come over for dinner, that's fine, but you didn't have to make up such a terrible excuse. Busted, except look at the next one. Her boss, my dad is very much alive. <laughs> it's one thing to get busted by the people you're making plans with, the people you're lying to, but to get busted by the people you're lying about, maybe, maybe don't have your boss as a friend on Facebook is the so I got a good chuckle of that, but, but as I was reading it, one of the things that struck me is I think there's something James would appreciate about each of those moments on social media, and not just highlighting the necessity for honesty, but demonstrating what happens when someone is there to call us out on our dishonesty. That's what we're digging into today in the last two verses 
in the book of James, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. I said we would be done this book by June, and by golly, we're done this book by June. These are the last two verses in the book. It says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James is imagining um, a scenario where somebody has wandered away from the truth. Um, They have begun to waffle in their faith and devotion and commitment to their belief in Jesus Christ. They have begun to drift away in their life from loving God and loving the people around them and loving the world as Jesus invites us to. And instead, they're beginning to choose a life of selfishness where they love themselves most of all. They're beginning to drift maybe away from Jesus in how they practice their faith. Uh, The Bible sits on the shelf now and the prayer doesn't happen and they're just not as engaged in being fully devoted with loving Jesus with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And slowly but surely they are drifting away from their life of faith. Now I use the phrase slowly or surely because James describes them as wandering. Wandering isn't something that happens in a moment, right? Wandering happens over time as you meander slowly further and further away from where you're supposed to be. And people, people don't just go to bed a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and wake up the next morning and think, you know what, this faith thing isn't for me. There is a season where they are beginning to wander. They're beginning to drift. They're beginning to listen to voices that are pulling them away from their devotion to Jesus Christ. James says, I want you to imagine somebody in your circle who's beginning to wander away from their faith. And then he says, and then I want you to imagine that somebody else refuses to allow that to happen. That somebody else takes it as their responsibility to go and get that person and bring them back. The phrase bring them back, literally in the Greek, it means to turn them around, to help them return. It's, it's sort of when I read it, I, I thought about the, that sad uh, woman's voice in the GPS that I use in the car. Who, you know, when I have wandered off the route that she has so thoughtfully laid out for me, there comes a moment in time where she will, you can almost hear her sigh. And then with this hint of sadness, she'll say, um, please Turn around when it's safe to do so. But it's that voice. James says, imagine somebody takes it upon themselves. They see somebody wandering away from their devotion of faith to Jesus Christ. And somebody else takes it upon themselves to say, no, 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 not on my watch. This is not going to happen. And they go and they bring them back. You know what that requires? It requires two things. It requires someone to notice 
what's going on in another person's life. Do not be so self-consumed that you can't see what's happening in other people's lives. Maybe even before they've noticed what's happening in their life. Maybe even before they've been honest with you about themselves. It, it takes somebody who's able and willing to notice. And it takes somebody who, having noticed, is able and willing to say something. To be honest about the other person with the other person. See, in the first week of this series, we just talked about core honesty. About being people whose yes means yes and whose no means no. Whose word can be taken to the bank. The kind of person who says that we'll be done preaching through this book by June. And you can just believe that it's true. We called that the, what, the uh, say what you mean and mean what you say kind of person. And then last week we talked about people who are willing to be honest about, them, about ourselves to ourselves. And to each other and to God in prayer. And that's kind of a what you see is what you get kind of person. Not playing games, not hiding what's really going on in my life. Well, if we're called to be a say what you mean and mean what you say kind of person and a what you see is what you get kind of person, what James is calling us to in these two verses, if I can borrow a phrase from our neighbors to the south after 9-11, he's calling us to be, if you see something, say something kind of a person. The kind of person who will, who will um, engage in another form of fundamental honesty. If we're going to be and become and experience the kind of community that God has created and called us to be. That radiates the life and love of Jesus into the world. We have to be the kind of people who can be honest with each other about each other. And to perf be perfectly frank. It takes a lot of wisdom to be that kind of person or to be that kind of community. Because a lot of us, we don't like to be those sorts of confrontational people who, want, who start a conversation and say, listen, can I tell you something that I've noticed in you? And then confront a, a reality in the other person's life. There, most of us don't like to do that. Many of us are recovering people pleasers. That's me too. I am a, a recovering people pleaser. Uh, we as people pleasers believe at some level that our life actually depends on the acceptance and the approval of other people. And so we're just terrified of rocking the boat. Some of us are conflict avoiders. Either just because we're pain avoiders in general, we don't like uncomfortable, awkward situations or whether because we were raised to believe that conflict is always bad or we were raised around so much conflict that we just don't want to spend another minute in it, in it for the rest of our lives. And so we avoid conflict at all costs. Some of us are just chameleons. Either because we don't quite know what we think and believe or how, we don't quite know how we ought to be living or just because we would rather just kind of Go with the flow, follow the crowd. And so we don't want to stand out and create a fuss. But when you have a community of people who are all afraid to speak the truth about each other to each other, do you know what you get? 
you get a preacher who ends up preaching an entire sermon with their fly down and nobody says a word about it. Okay, y'all let me down last week. Somebody, if you see something, say something. And we'll just sort of leave it at that. No, what you end up with is you have people wandering away from the truth and, and folks who aren't willing to be the one to go and get them and bring them back. Now, I will say that there are some in our midst who are unafraid of confrontational conversations. Um. There's some among us whose inner compulsion is the need to be right. I mean, in reality, people like that are so afraid of being wrong or getting it wrong or failing in some part of their faith that they actually will sort of insist that everyone has to agree with them all the time. Everyone has to think like them so that they can feel confident in their own beliefs. Or some of us are, have a little bit of a need for control. That... Um, the, angst, the, the, the chaos created by diversity and disagreement induces so much anxiety in us that we sort of insert ourselves aggressively in every situation to make sure everybody stays in line so that I can feel secure. Um, some of us have a need to be respected. We don't want to feel weak or inferior because we're afraid that we are And so we live our lives trying to feel tall by cutting off everybody else's head. And the truth is it takes a lot of wisdom, not just to understand what you are like and how you respond in situations when you see someone else wandering away from the truth. It takes a lot of wisdom to discern whether or not this is even a situation where you ought to insert yourself, whether or not someone is genuinely wandering away from the truth, right? Because that's what James is talking about. He's not just talking about people who disagree or who are living their faith differently than us or practicing their religiosity different than we would or whatever. He's talking about people who are wandering from the truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They are literally wandering away from Jesus. They're wandering away from the truth about Jesus. No longer believing things that are central to what it means to be a Christian. Or they're wandering away from the way of Jesus. And they're no longer living a life of loving God and loving people. Which is what following Jesus looks like. And instead they're choosing a life of sin. Or they're no longer wandering in the life of Jesus. Um, The way they practice their spirituality. They're just disinterested. And what the scriptures say, they're disinterested in prayer. They're disinterested in being a part of worship or in being a part of the faith community. They're literally on a path to not being a Christian anymore. Unchoosing Jesus with their life. That's what James is talking about. He's not just talking about people who disagree about some, you know, they love Jesus with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, but they just read the Bible differently in some ways. Or they practice their faith differently in some ways. Or they live their their life of obedience in a different way than we would if we were in their shoes. I think we, uh, we sometimes think that people who do faith differently than us actually don't have a faith at all. 
right? Because we believe the way that we believe and we live the way that we live and we practice our faith the way we practice it because we think that's right. And some of it is probably righter than other people. But, but just because somebody does it differently than us doesn't mean that they're not on their own unique individual journey being led by the Holy Spirit towards a deeper faith and love in Jesus Christ. Because that's what we're doing. We're all on this journey as individuals, but in community with each other. And, And the point I'm trying to make is this. It takes a lot of wisdom to discern both why I'm choosing not to or why I am choosing to get involved in a situation where I have questions or concerns about another person. And it takes a lot of wisdom to discern whether or not that is a situation that even merits getting involved in. But it's not only wisdom, living the, if you see something, say something, you kind of um, love, kind of truth-telling, doesn't just take wisdom, it takes humility. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The rabbis used to talk about two measuring sticks that were used to measure the quality of people's lives. And one they called the measure of judgment and the other they called the measure of mercy. The measure of judgment assumed the worst about people and it was quick to condemn The measure of mercy always assumed the best about people and it was quick to extend grace. And Jesus says, you have to be very careful with the way that you assess somebody else's life and faith and the way they are going about following Jesus. Because with whatever measure you use on somebody else, that is the measure that God and probably the people around you are going to use on you. And so, so being a see, if you see something, say something kind of person takes the sort of humility that starts with you and says, okay, what is my, like, check your heart. What is my internal posture right now? Why am I feeling compelled to say something? Am I, am I, am I living in a spirit of judgment or am I living in the spirit of mercy? It's a humility to start with yourself at the level of motivation, but also to start with yourself at the level of your own life. Jesus goes on to say this. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus says, how could you presume to talk to somebody else about what's going on in their life when you haven't done the hard work to clean up your side of the street first? Because we, we do this all the time. I, I said this last week. One of the ways that we lie to ourselves about ourselves is that we have this tendency to maximize other people's sin and to minimize our sin. So we can feel better about our spiritual condition because that person is a much worse sinner than me. And Jesus is saying that is exactly the backwards way to look at it. 
Our posture ought to always be to maximize our sense of the sin in our own life and to minimize the sense of sin in somebody else's life. If somebody else has sin the size of a speck of sawdust in their eye that they need to deal with, before we can do any dealing with them, we have to first realize that there is a two by four sticking out of our own face. That's the level of sin that we have to deal with in our life. We have to be on the journey of addressing our own garbage before we have the moral authority to talk to somebody else about what's going on in their life. Otherwise, Jesus says, you're just a hypocrite. Right? The word hypocrite just means actor. You're just pretending to care about sin because you don't care about yours. You just care about the sin that's going on in somebody else's life. And Jesus says, you, you can't engage with somebody else about what's going on in their life until you've had the humility to check your heart and motivation. And you've had the humility to begin doing the hard work in your own life of realizing that whatever somebody else's issues are, yours are just as big or bigger. Because it'll entirely change the way you have the conversation. But it's not just the humility of introspection, of, of checking your own heart. It's a humility that manifests itself in the way that we have conversations with the people in our lives. James, by the way, has already given us the formula for how to have, if you see something, say something kinds of conversations where we're being honest with each other about each other based on what we see going on in each other's lives. James has already given us the secret recipe. Uh, we read this verse back in the fall. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James says, here's the order of operations for how this conversation goes. First step, you listen. And then you listen, and then you listen some more, and then listen after that. He says, your, your starting posture is to try and understand where the other person is coming from. Um, try and hear their story. Empathize with their hurt. See their heart in the midst of it. Be somebody who comes in in the posture of listening. And as you're listening, James says, be slow to speak. Don't, don't have a bunch of opinions or concerns about what's going on or about what the other person is saying. In fact, it isn't your turn to speak until about the situation until they feel both understood and loved by the way you've listened to them. So you don't come in with all sorts of pre-formulated opinions. You don't come in with the speech written in your head. You come in knowing you're going to listen and then listen and then listen and then listen some more. And you're going to hold your tongue until that other person feels understood and loved. And once you've understood them and loved them, now you are equipped to begin a conversation with them. You're quick to listen, slow to speak. James says, thirdly, slow to get angry. Don't react. Don't overreact. Don't get all worked up. Allow the person to explain their heart and, and just receive it and accept it with grace and patience and love. And then James says, it is eventually your turn to speak. And the way you speak matters. We speak in a posture of humility that manifests itself in love. We, we've already talked this winter, spring maybe, about the kind of person 
who gets to be a spiritual influence in other people's lives. And I gave you three characteristics of that person. They're, they're gentle, right? They, they're lovers, not fighters. They don't want to fight. Um, they're gracious in every response to everything that's said, and they are open-minded to consider the other person's point of view. That's what it means to be gentle. They're generous. Their life is marked with active compassion and mercy for those who find themselves on the outside. And thirdly, they're gentle, they're generous, and they're genuine. They're non-judgmental. They don't have preformed opinions. And they come in as a person of integrity who just wants to do the right thing. If, if you're that kind of person, you come into the conversation as someone who is gentle and generous and genuine, then when it's your turn to speak, this is how you'll talk. Ephesians 4.15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. The apostle Paul says the only kind of conversation that grows us all up to be more like Jesus is when we're willing to speak the truth to each other about each other, but willing to do it in love in a place that originates in love, that is executed in love, that is, as much as it depends on you, received in love, where love is the defining characteristic of every word that gets exchanged. This, honestly, friends, this is James' final point in the entire letter is a plea with his people, a plea with us to become folks who are willing to speak the truth to each other about each other in love. People who are willing to be, if you see something, say something kind of people who will exercise the wisdom to discern what an appropriate conversation would look like and the humility to carry it out in love. And James says, when you become those kinds of people, it literally changes everything. I'll, I'll read the last verse of the letter again. James says this, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's fairly dramatic. James says, you, you can literally save a person's life by being the kind of person who has the courage, the wisdom, and the humility to, if you see something, say something about what you see going on in somebody's life. And he doesn't just mean physical death. Death always refers to the consequences that we experience because of our choices to sin. So it's, it, there are physical consequences sometimes, but there are mental consequences and emotional consequences and spiritual consequences and relational consequences. And James says, if you can be the kind of person who in wisdom and humility can speak up and speak the truth in love to each other, about each other, you can literally save each other from the shame, the blame, the conflict, the pain, the frustration, the diminishment of life that comes whenever we choose sin. The word save is the same word that means rest rescue or heal, you can bring people back from the brink of experiencing the painful consequence of their sin. You can bring healing into their lives in the consequences of this that they're already beginning to experience because of the choices that they've made. You can be a healing, rescuing, redemptive presence in their lives. And he says, you will cover over a multitude of sins. A phrase to cover over a multitude of sins refers to 
like washing the record of sin out of the books in heaven. So on the one hand, it refers to our past and present sins. If you, can, if you see somebody wandering away from the truth of a life with Jesus Christ and you go and you turn them around and you bring them back, that act of turning around is called repentance and the act of coming back is called faith. And in response to repentance and faith, do you know what Jesus does? He forgives all of our sins. He covers over a multitude of the sin that we were living into. But I don't just think James is talking about the past sin. I think he's talking about covering over future sin. Not just sin that's already been committed, but sin that's actually was going to be coming, but now isn't because that person has been brought back to faith. Not just in their own life, but in the lives of all the people they're connected to. We are not individuals. We are vitally embedded into networks of relationships. And whenever we wander off, whenever we um, begin to wander away from the truth about Jesus Christ, there is an entire network of relationships that is being dragged away with us. As we spiral out of control in faith, the lives of our friends and family and loved ones and kids, all of those relationships are being affected. The entire faith community is being affected by our drift away. But when somebody goes and, and gets us and brings us back, all of the destructive impact that would have taken place, not just in a person's life, but in that community's life, all of that is covered over. Never mind all of the lives that are affected by the lives of that community, because each one of those lives is embedded in a network of relationships. And there are people who do and who do not yet love Jesus who are affected by the choices that we make. And you begin to think about this incredible scope of redemption. These ripples of redemption keep flowing outward further and further and further. And sin is being wiped out of the record of heaven. And God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven in people's lives because Somebody had the courage in wisdom and humility to lovingly speak the truth about each other to each other. They were willing to be a wise and humble, loving, if you see something, say something kind of person. And so here's the question for every one of us. What's the conversation you're not having right now? With somebody in your world who needs an if you see something, say something kind of conversation. Who have you been avoiding talking to about the things you see in their life that are concerning them? Because you see them wandering away from the faith. And let me ask this. Why are you avoiding it? What is it that you're afraid of that is preventing you from engaging in the conversation? And what is it costing you to not have that conversation? And probably the bottom, bottom, bottom line question is this. What are we going to do about it? As we be honest about ourselves to ourselves and to each other and to God about how we're afraid to be a, if you see something, say something kind of person in this particular circumstance. In what way, what step forward can you take, even today, even this week, to begin the journey 
of being that kind of wise and humble, loving truth teller in the lives of the people that God has put into your life. And what kind of redemption will God unleash if we could become those kinds of people? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful that when you saw our condition, you said something. You sent your son, Jesus, whom the Bible calls the word of God. Your word came into our lives in the form and the person of Jesus to invite us back into the way. God, would you make us like Jesus? Fill us with your spirit that we might be wise and humble, loving truth tellers in each other's lives so that your kingdom can come among us and beyond us on earth, just as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.